Hello and welcome to this episode, which is the first of the sequence of episodes we're going to be doing on Germany uh, before and after the First World War, uh, leading into Weimar. So I suppose we should really start at the beginning um, and talk about the birth of Germany. So Germany's a relatively new country, only comes into existence in 1871 after the Franco-Prussian War. And there's a person we really need to talk about here, isn't there? Yeah, we're talking about the Chancellor. Yeah, definitely. Otto von Bismarck. Who is a hero in Germany, quite rightly, because you're creating a country out of whole cloth. Mm -hmm. You have Prussia, which exists, and all the other little German states, Bavaria. Bavaria is one of the big ones. I mean, yeah. Prussia's obviously the biggest. Yeah. Brunswick, Saxony, Baden. There's the whole sort of whole range of smaller principalities. And they come together into one empire of these separate countries under the rule of Kaiser Wilhelm. But you can't underestimate the difficulties there are here because you need one currency, you need one legal system, you need a postage system, and it is Bismarck who's doing this. Yes, of course, yeah. And, and it's, it also has the unenviable task of trying to assimilate all the various ethnic minorities mm. within this empire, because it's not just a mixture of different German states. You've also got ethnic Poles, Danes, even French in Alsace-Lorraine. So, yeah, Bismarck is the person, really, who pulls all of this together. And it's very interesting, especially in light of what happens later in Germany, when you look at how he did it, because the way he pulls all these different ethnic groups together is by simply saying, I don't care whether you're a Pole, I don't care whether you're French, you're German. I don't care what your race is, your nationality is Germany and let's work together for Germany. And it works. It really does unite these very disparate groups into a powerhouse of a country. And obviously Bismarck then turns his attention outside to trying to keep the international order ticking over because Germany has this major problem to do with its location. Yeah. And he becomes a supreme European statesman in balancing the powers, the great powers oh, yeah. of Europe off against each other. Yeah. And it's and you know, Bismarck's core aim here is just to secure Germany with its vulnerable position in the center of Europe, surrounded by potential enemies. Mm. Uh, but he was well known he was renowned for his statesmanship. And, and as a result, I mean he becomes a supremely not just competent but very, very powerful Chancellor. Yeah. And that causes a problem later on for it, later monarchs. It certainly does, because uh, the, the Kaiser, Kaiser Wilhelm I, is basically a figurehead. Mm. And he's quite happy to sit here and let uh, Bismarck run everything. Because who wants the hassle? The problem comes when his son takes the throne. And then you've got Kaiser Wilhelm II, who has a very different view of the role of the monarch. Mm. Kaiser Wilhelm II is of an older breed... He wants to have, essentially, an autocracy. He wants to be the person that does it himself. Yeah. He wants to be the person that controls foreign policy, domestic policy. And as a result, he tries to limit the power of the chancellors that he works with. In fact, I think he had four chancellors, and none of them could rival the power or the influence that Bismarck enjoyed. Because, no. of course, I mean, one of the first things he does when he comes to power is he sacks Bismarck. Mm. This man who's done more than anybody to pull Germany together. Yeah, he's your gold watch. Get out. Um, but so now we're in a situation where we've got the Kaiser running Germany. 
And although he's inherited a country that's that's ticking over, there are some problems here, aren't there? That there's there's really four major issues that are at play. And I suppose if if we sort of think it all stems, all of the others sort of plug in when you start thinking about the industrialization, because the industrial revolution has come quite late to Germany. Yes. Because in Germany you have this vested interest of the Junker class. The it's spelt Junkers, but pronounced Junkers, mm. and they're the aristocratic landholders, and they want to keep very much this sort of like agrarian serf-based economy going. But if you're going to be a modern country, you need to industrialize, mm. and and this is where one of the first problems for the Kaiser comes into it. So industrialization is is actually it's a good thing for Germany. It's going yeah. to push Germany to the forefront of uh, you know the, the for, one of the foremost European powers. Uh, by 1914, on the eve of the First World War, Germany's producing more than twice as much um, steel than Britain was. Yeah. It's uh, producing a third of the world's electrical goods. A chemical industry, yeah. it's, it's the world's biggest. And, and, and it's, it's great, it's, it's wonderful, but it does have some knock-on effects, yeah. which the Kaiser isn't best pleased with. I mean, one of them is... is it's really that the, the population growth mm-hmm. is part of this. It means as people move to the cities and they move out of the countryside to take advantage of the work that industrialization has created, it means that Germany is unable to essentially feed itself. Yeah. And as a result, it starts to import food and they reached a fifth of Germany's needs by 1914. I mean, that's just the first problem that industrialization creates, but it's the growth of the working classes yeah. that leads to the other, and the, the centralization of the working classes in the in the, in in the cities, which, as we've seen in the Power and the People unit, that we've had a look at. Once you start getting the working classes grouped together, they will start to agitate for better working conditions. And you have to remember, in the in the broader scheme of things. This isn't that long after you've had the Communist Manifesto published. Mm. Uh, in 1905, you have the first attempted revolution in Russia. So socialism, the drive towards yeah. uh, an equal playing field for the working classes, is there. And you have political agitators mm. in these towns, in these cities, in these factories. Yeah, and th- the reason why this is a problem for the Kaiser is because it's obviously a direct challenge mm. to his authoritarianism and to the traditional view of how Germany should be run from these from the ruling classes. Yeah, um, it doesn't mean that they ignore the people; they ignore people with socialist beliefs. In fact, successive governments did try to pacify mm-hmm. socialist demands by passing a range of social reforms. So, for example... Pensions. Age, pensions, yeah. yeah. Uh, 20 years before they did in Britain, sickness benefits, accident insurance schemes. But they're only doing it to try to pacify the demands of new socialist parties, and in particular the Social Democrat Party, um, who will grow in this period yeah. to become the leading party um, in the German government. One of the things you will see here is that these problems that we're going to talk about are structural problems. They're baked into the very structure of the society. And the fixes that the Kaiser is bringing are not structural fixes. They're like quick political fixes. Mm. And they're never going to satisfy. 
Because at the same time as you've got the working classes organising and, and this drive towards socialism, you've also got increasing clamour for some form of representation from the middle classes, which gives you uh, a growth in parliamentary democracy, which again is directly opposed to what the Kaiser wants, which is his autocratic, what I say goes. Yeah, and you know, and even though we, we do have this growth of parliamentary government, it's important to remember that the Kaiser is, is ultimately the, the, the final say mm-hmm. on everything. But because he has to take note of this Reichstag, and he has to, I suppose, play this game, that's going to be frustrating for him because he mm-hmm. really wants to do it himself. There are some parties within this Reichstag who are supportive of his regime, the more right-wing, conservative parties. Yeah. And they usually would join together to form coalitions to help pass laws which were favourable to the old order and which the, uh, the Kaiser maybe wouldn't mind too much. But in the run-up towards the First World War, the socialist parties start to win more support. Yeah. And in particular, the Social Democrat Party... Um, and they are appealing to the growing number of industrial workers. So there's a link, isn't there, between yeah. three these three problems: the industrialization of Germany, leading to a growth in in a working class, which leads to a growth in socialism, support for socialism, which then starts to change yeah. the makeup of this sort of fledgling democracy that the Kaiser isn't that keen on anyway. Yeah. And these, these structural problems aren't being addressed before the country's then plunged mm. into a, a cataclysmic mm. war. And that, I suppose, well, thinking about the war that's on the horizon brings us to the other major problem, the fourth one, yeah. which is that the dominant force in this new Germany is Prussia. Yes. And one of the power centres in Prussia, you have the landowning aristocracy, you have the, the crown, the emperor, mm. uh, uh, and also you have the industrialists coming up through the middle. But you also have the military. They have a very proud military tradition. They have, they're the, they're the world's most professional army. Mm-hmm. Um, they train their officers. They're interested in the theory and practice of war, which is why they, you know, defeated the French in the Franco-Prussian War yeah. in a, a matter of weeks. Um, and so this this domination of the Prussian political seen by the army does have an effect mm. it's uh, i mean you have to understand the german people were proud of this army mm. but the the impact that it's having is that it, it it's anti-democratic really yeah the kaiser is more willing to listen to the military chiefs who are determining germany's foreign policy which is going to have a knock-on effect with its relationship with other countries in europe and he wants to listen to these more than he wants to listen to the Reichstag, yeah. uh, and the groups which are pushing for further reform to make uh, Germany a more sort of a fairer country to live within. And again, there's only so much money going around, mm-hmm. and you can't be improving the living conditions of your people in the country if you're splurging your money on one of the largest standing armies in Europe. And I suppose at this point, we also need to say a whacking great big fleet of ships that you have yeah. no earthly use for. Yeah, and th- I mean, this is th- the final problem, I suppose, for the Kaiser when it comes to ruling Germany. With the influence of the Prussian military, there is a push as well to build a navy which rivals that of Great Britain. And there's a, you know, there's a well-known sort of 
envy that the Kaiser yeah. has towards the British Empire and Great Britain. And this links into his, his foreign policy goals mm-hmm. of Weltpolitik. Yeah. This idea of creating a powerful international Germany with a trading empire which gives it its place in the sun. Yeah, definitely. And in order to challenge Britain on that level, Mm -hmm. you do need some form of naval power. So you get locked into this naval arms race, which is Mm. kicked off by the German naval laws. But again, although we're saying this is a problem, you have to remember that at home, domestically, Mm. the navy laws and the launches of the Nassau and these ships are are greeted as triumphs. It's pride again, isn't yeah. it? It's the same as as the pride in the Prussian um, army. Yeah, and that tradition. This is it is great for German pride, but it's also incredibly expensive. Yes, and I think most of the um, main parties, the Conservative Party, the Social Democrat Party, definitely, they opposed these early navy laws because yeah. they didn't want to be spending no. that money. Um, when it could be used for social reform. But as you pointed out, it's a populist policy. Yeah. And it's very easy to win people over when you say, look at our great big shiny new battleships that we're yeah. going to take on the British with. So I think that, that more or less covers everything. So to summarise here, you've got Germany as a new country. Shortly after it's born, the Kaiser, the Kaiser Wilhelm II comes to the throne and takes personal control but there are some structural issues that he has to deal with. And they go from industrialization to the growth of socialism to uh, growth in parliamentary democracy. And running alongside that, you have the influence of the Prussian military, this, this militaristic approach, which then feeds into the Navy laws. And all of that will come together and will be sent into the crucible of the First World War. And as to what happens to Germany after the First World War, well, that's what we'll talk about in the next episode. So, thank you very much for listening, and good luck on your exams.